We're in 1 Samuel 4 through 7. So we're going to tackle three chapters today. And, and, and honestly, when you look at these, these, uh, these chapters, this could be a movie. I mean, a really good movie. I mean, in our family, we, we play the movie line game. You all ever play that game? Let's do that this morning. I want to play the movie line game. Okay, you ready? I'm Batman. What movie? Batman. Okay, yeah. Okay, that was easy. Okay, let me let me let me give you another one. Okay, this is a little harder. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Raiders of the Lost Ark, right there. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, that was a great movie, right? I mean, uh, it's a it's a Disney World. Uh, at least it was last time we were there. Uh, they probably changed it now, but it used to be a Disney World like uh, attraction. And it was so cool. I remember when we took our kids there and, and uh, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, scene. And, and, and when the explo- they, they reenacted the scene of the plane where, the, where Harrison Ford was fighting the big bald guy. Right? Remember that? And the, and the thing blew up. And, and I just remember sitting there in Disney World and the heat hit my face after the explosion. I was like, oh my goodness, that's so cool. Um, but that's a great movie. I mean, but when you think about the premise of that movie... Really, it was, the, the story of that movie was the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was this idea, and, and it was a storyline that the Nazis were, if they had the Ark of the Covenant, that would be the presence of God that would drive the Nazi war machine, and, and no one could ever defeat them with the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the storyline of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, now really... They're getting that idea for that blockbuster film from 1 Samuel 4 through 7. This is known in Scripture as the Ark narrative. Okay, it's the story where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was, uh, was so powerfully on display. And so turn to 1 Samuel 4. We're going we're gonna to look at this in our, in our, in our timeline, and we've got to tackle four chapters today. And, and what we're doing over the next several months is we're just kind of walking through the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel's, where we'll, we'll be. And, and 1 Samuel is such a cool story. It's such a, uh, um, uh, an important narrative for us to understand as God's people. And, and so this arc narrative, as it unfolds in chapter 4, you see the people of God, and it's interesting, they carry the ark before them in battle. The, the Philistines are, are always a nemesis for God's people. And, and we're going to get into some cool stories in, in Samuel. It's such a mirror to our culture today, and, and it's important for us to understand. But as, as, as God's people are facing the Philistines, they, they said, hey, we need the ark. So they took the ark before them in battle. Now notice chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 3. Or, uh, yeah, verse 3. Uh, my eyes, i got to get my eyes checked. When the, when the soldiers returned to the camp, verse 3 of chapter 4, when the soldiers returned to the camp of Israel, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Because so they were in this battle and the Philistines were, were, were attacking them. They lost a battle. Verse, verse 3 says, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, now, the Ark of the Covenant was this, this powerful presence of God. It spoke to the presence of God. Now, what was interesting about God's people at this time, they were seeing the Ark as a little rabbit's foot, as a little good luck charm, and they missed the idea that, that it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that was bringing power. It was God who was bringing power. 
And see, we fall into this idea. We get these rabbit's foots or these trinkets or, you know, these crosses that we put in places. And we, and we put our trust in some of these, these relics, if you will. And, and all through history, there, there are people that put power in a relic or in, a, in, a, in some kind of a, a item. And, and like where, where, Keith was to, where Keith is today and that, trip, that, that group of people that are in Mexico right now, they are among a group of people that worship this doll. They, they do it in the name of Christ, kind of, but, but it's, they're twisted. It's messed up, and, and people are going in this part of Mexico to worship this doll that supposedly has brought healing because it, it had this blood tears, supposedly, that came out of this doll. So people go and bow down to this doll. So it's interesting, and as the, the children of Israel, they were doing this in 1 Samuel 4. They were looking at this as a relic, and... And, and what's happening as, we, as we've been walking through this book, we saw last week kind of the judgment of God was coming against Eli and his sons. And, and now in chapters 4 through 7, you see this judgment unfolding. And it's pretty interesting because as the story unfolds, uh, they go into battle with the ark in front of them. Now, there's something to notice here. As they go into this battle, there's someone missing in this. Who is it? Samuel is not mentioned. They go get the ark on their own. They they do it away from the prophet. Samuel's the last judge. They take the ark on their own, and they lose the battle. And it's interesting because in this moment, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli who were rebellious, if you were here last week, you saw this. If you read chapters 1 through 3, you see Hophni and Phinehas were priests, and, and, and they, were, they were crooked, they were corrupt, and, and the man of God came to Eli and said, your sons are going to die and your name's going to be wiped out. And all of a sudden, Hophni and Phinehas, in this moment, they get killed in this battle with the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines. And it's interesting, it's terrible, it's a terrible moment. Eli's daughter, or Eli's daughter-in-law, uh, as she is, uh, it's Phineas's wife, she's pregnant. And, and as she's pregnant and hears the report, Eli hears the report, oh my goodness, the, the battle was lost, the Philistines stole the ark, and your sons have died. Eli, the priest, who is Samuel's kind of mentor, he gets so overwhelmed. He's heavy, he's a fat guy now. He has um, not been a good leader. He falls backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. All of a sudden, his daughter-in-law goes into labor. And it's this unfolding, crazy story. She goes into labor, and she, she's just so stressed. And so when her son was born, she names him Ichabod, which is a bummer. I mean, we ought to all go home and thank our mothers today, if we can, for not naming us Ichabod. I mean, can you imagine Ichabod? Uh, you're signing up for the baseball team, or Icky, it's time for dinner, come, come on, Icky, I mean, what, I mean, Ichabod, he had to spend his whole life, which means the glory of God has departed, I mean, how would you like to have that in your kindergarten class, oh, there's the glory of God that's departed right there, sitting at your desk, and, and so this is a bad deal, she named the boy, if you look at verse 21 of chapter 4, she named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel, because of the capture of the ark and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. And she says, the glory of God has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And as chapter 4 unfolds, it's such an amazing story that you've got to know this. You've got to know this narrative. 
because the Philistines take the ark, they put it in their shrine. They had this god they worship named Dagon. And, and they put the ark in there, in there with Dagon. And it's so, this is funny to me. I mean, to me, this is just one of the most amazing parts of Scripture. Because as they, they put it in there overnight. They come the next day, and Dagon had fallen over. And it looks like Dagon is worshiping at the ark of the covenant. And I think that's really funny. Uh, God's like, yeah, you know, and so they, they're like, oh my goodness, what happened? So they, they put Dagon back up, and, and then the next night, uh, Dagon falls over again, but this time he breaks his hand, and his, he- his hands are off, and his head is severed, and to me, I, I just love that. I just think God's like, this would be funny, bam, you know, I don't, it's, it's probably, I don't, I'm not a good movie sound effect guy. Sorry, that's the best I got. Um, but it's so cool. The Philistines, then, they're like, okay, they were polytheistic at this time. And, and, and so, like, like so many today, polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. They looked at the God of Israel and said, oh, you're just like one of the gods. But it's interesting as God shows his power here because the Philistines... Are, are, they have the ark. They're like, okay, this is a bummer. Then they get tumors. And, and the, the word for this, I'm not being crude. This is just the Bible. The word is hemorrhoids, right? That's a bad day. Hemorrhoids are progressing through the people of the Philistines. And so they get these tumors. They, and and it's, it's God's hand. The Bible says God's hand was heavy against them. And it's interesting, they're, they're just like, they're passing it around, and all these plagues are coming, the hemorrhoids are plaguing them, and, and they keep sending it from city to city, and, and they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. And so they come up with this little scheme, and it's so cool how, how what they do. They, they, they said, well, they're still not 100% convinced that this is God. So they, they make this, this little, like, fleece, or they say, let's see if this is really God. I mean, in spite of the hemorrhoids, in spite of the, the sickness, in spite of the Dagon falling in his hands and head getting cut off, they said, okay, if this is really from the God of Israel, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to give the ark back. We're going to see if it'll go back. So they make these golden tumors. I mean, can you imagine being, hey, you're the guy crafting the golden hemorrhoids, okay? Make those. And they make golden mice. Okay, and they said, we're going to put this in the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to take these two cows that are, that are nursing their young. Now, I'm not an expert in cow science, but, I, but they say that it's, it's abnormal for two cows that are nursing their young to immediately leave their young. And so they have this idea, let's take these two cows that are nursing, we're going to yoke them together. Now, cows that are yoked together that have never been yoked together usually don't do too well from what they say. Um, and uh, it makes me feel good that Matt's nodding his head because you have experience with that. Thank you very much. I'm not going to claim to be an expert. But, but it was unique. These cows would not normally work together. And they said, let's yoke them together. And if they immediately start heading to Israel, leave their, their young and just head down the road towards the, 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 the line, then we'll say, we'll let it go. So they put these golden tumors in there. They put the mice in there. They yoke the cows together. And all of a sudden, these cows beeline it to Israel. And they're like, whoa, okay, this is for real, God. Let's get this ark out of our lives. 
and they do. And it's interesting. It seems strange that as they, as they go into Israel, um, they, it's, they, they go into Beth Shemesh. And, and, and as soon as these cows got together, they went to Beth Shemesh. And when they entered Israel, 70 of the men of Beth Shemesh, they do something that's forbidden. They go look in the ark. And when that happens, these, these Israelites are killed. It's interesting. The, 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 the Philistines looked in the ark, and they weren't killed. They didn't handle the ark correctly. They weren't killed. But the Israelites, as soon as the ark passed into their country, and they had the ark, they looked into it. Seventy men were killed because they knew better. And remember the theme in Samuel? One of the themes that we have to see is, is, is flippantly worshiping the Lord is never a good idea. For us to just go through motions is never what God wants us to do. This is what we have to be mindful of this as God's people. We've got to remember this is a message to God's people who are living in an unrepentant reality. They are, this is the end of the judges. Samuel's the last judge. Remember the cycle of judges as people are in this rebellion and, and disobeying the Lord. This is why I pray we are not a people of God that disobey him, that dishonor him, that don't follow him. And this is what we have to see. And God struck these down. And, and, but this narrative is so cool because the Philistines are more powerful in army, with the armies, with, with they, they, they are, they're ruling over Israel. They're, they're a thorn to Israel, but God keeps bringing victory to them. God keeps showing this truth. Point number one is this, there is only one God. And that's something we need to understand. We live in a culture that, 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 that struggle with, with who God is. And I want us to recognize there is only one God. Do you know that people often miss the identity of God? And I don't want us to be follow that example. People in our day, we miss the identity of God. In this passage, there's a major theme that, that is, 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 it, it emerges over and over again. And it's, and it's ironically articulated by the Philistines. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I want you to look at 1 Samuel 4. 6 through 8. Look at this theme. In verses 6 through 8, it says this, Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty, of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the, the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. What do they do? They're misunderstanding the identity of God. They're saying, oh, the, he's one of the gods. And see, one of the things that the Bible has, has corrected for us, the Bible has helped us recognize, is that, is that there's only one God. This is a natural response for a polytheistic people. People that believe in many gods. And, and, and know what we would do is, 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 is we would call these like Dagon and all these gods of, of other people, these gods that people worship. You know what? We would rightly call them not other gods but false gods. Now, there's a difference. 
between, oh, we believe in other gods, then there's a false god. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of debates on let's coexist or the existence of God. And there's a prominent idea going on right now. There are many paths to heaven. There are many ways to God. That's the world we live in. We often watch right in front of us this misidentification of God. And I want us to be clear today. The Bible points to the fact that there's only one God. And think about it. The story of the Bible. The the, the children of Israel, just there, this relatively small group of people that God had his hand on to say, I'm going to reveal myself to the world that I'm the only God. I'm going to take this group of people and I'm going to bless them and lead them. And, and think about the children of Israel, how many times in the history of the world that people have tried to annihilate them and wipe them out. And guess what? They're still here. And, and the point is, God is showing his power. And you think about this idea that there are other gods. Who could enter human history like Jesus? Who could do that? Be born of a virgin. Folks, if that's true, is there really another God? I mean, think about the life that Jesus lived. Oh my goodness, the life that he lived, the people that watched him, that walked with him, that he did these miracles, they were like, who are you? Who can do this but God, right? Then he went to the cross. What? Who would do that? Who would go to the cross after sinlessness? And then he conquered the grave. Folks, he, he defeated death itself. How can there be another God? Who, who is Muhammad? Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. I mean, I was in Cambodia a, a couple of years ago with the Roarks, and we, we go to Cambodia as a church, and, and I remember walking through and these deities that they pray to, and I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? That guy's dead. Probably died of diabetes. He's big, big guy. He didn't conquer the grave. Folks, is there any other God? No. So, so when, when we get that idea or, or hear that thought of, oh, there are many gods or there's many paths to heaven, no. No, there can't be. Who is like Jesus? No one. And, and you know, every time other gods are mentioned, you know what it's simply describing? And let's just clarify this. Let's put a spotlight on this. What it's describing is demonic activity. That's satanic activity. That's Satan trying to mimic, trying to do what he's done from the beginning. In Genesis 3, like, oh, no, look, you can see like God. And it's an attack of the enemy. Matthew 16, 13 is one of my favorite verses, favorite passages of Scripture. My favorite moments with Jesus as they are at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is hanging with Peter and and his disciples, and, and he goes to the gates of hell. Literally, that we stood there, and, and it's, it's at the edge of the gates of hell. They would do this pagan worship, and, and they would do child sacrifices in this place. And Jesus travels there with his disciples in front of the gates of hell, one of the most, um, one of the most demonic places, I believe, in the history of the world. We stood there. When, when you, if you were to put on spiritual glasses and recognize the spiritual battle that took place at Caesarea Philippi, oh my goodness, you, think, you talk about terrifying. And we stood there where Jesus stood. And he looked at Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? Jesus said. 
Who do you guys say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he goes, you are the Christ, he says. You are the Messiah. He says, the son of the living God. That's who we serve. That's who's in control. We don't live in a world of multiple gods. There's one God. And so there's a great question that I pray we face today. Have have I missed the true identity of God? Do we miss his true identity? Oh, let's turn to him. I want you to see him today. One of my favorite passages is in Isaiah 44. I just want to read it. It talks about the silliness of gods, of creating another god. They, it says in verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. I shall, and shall, shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This whole chapter in Isaiah 44 is the silliness of somebody that made that that rock, Dagon, they made it with their own hands. And then they look at it and said, oh, this is God. Let me worship it. Folks, let me tell you something. We don't worship something we made or someone we created. We worship the one who created us, who is making us into his image. And so how silly it is for us to fall into this trap. And, and, and what's interesting in this story, in this narrative, through his power, God helped get the ark back because they needed the ark back, and, and they got it back. And, and it's interesting at, at chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And this is the passage we read today, and it's, and it's so important for us, and I don't want to miss it. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, look at this, a long time passed, some 20 years. And the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's let that sink in for a minute. 20 years 20 years they lamented. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away Baals and Ashtoreth and they serve the Lord only. Now this is significant because it reveals that the sin of God's people was not just how they flippantly handled the ark. Because Hophni and Phinehas took the ark and, and just kind of flippantly took it to the front of the battle and, and using it kind of as a rabbit's foot. That was a sin against the Lord. But the real sin that the people of God were experiencing was that they were worshiping other gods. 
And, and we think that's silly to us. It, it seems silly to us to think, how could they bow down to this rock or this, um, this um, wooden idol that they made with their own hands? How could they intellectually make that shift of something that I created and I'm going to worship it? But man, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Ben, Ben, I had dinner at his house this week. He told me a story of his life. How he spent years in pursuit of a career and made it. And he goes, is this it? And he said, what I found is when I seek the Lord, that's where life begins. That's all of us. We have a tendency to put a job in front of, put our trust in a retirement account. You know the difference of Baals and Ashtoreth. You know what they were. Baal was this god of thunder and rain and storms. And the Ashtoreth was this god of crops and and when they would get together, fertility, when they would get together and have babies, the crops would be good. And God's people were worshiping them. They were worshiping their, what, what are the crops? What do crops mean in an agrarian society? It's stability, it's future, it's sustenance. But what about us? What do we put our trust in our retirement accounts? Right? Our jobs, our, our future. Oh, if we just had a good economy, if I, if I just get that job, if I can just win the lottery, oh my goodness, if I could win the lottery, oh, my problems would be solved. And I stand in quick trip paying for my gas next to people all the time going, oh man, I'm going to try to win that lottery. You're not going to win the lottery. And, and, it's not, and if you do, it won't solve your problems. Let's not follow the same example of putting our trust in earthly things and miss the fact that we have the God of all creation that we serve who owns everything, who directs everything, who is not sitting today in want or need, who is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And what's interesting is right here, God's people got it. They got it. And it's interesting, for 20 years they got it. Why? Because they repented. And and so let's look at this. It's my prayer point too is this, that we understand the anatomy of repentance. What's repentance? What does it mean in practical terms? And let's look at verses 3 through 6 of chapter 7 because it lays it out. It's a beautiful picture of repentance. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord, look at this, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. 
and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and look at this, and they served the Lord only. What is the anatomy of repentance? What does it look like? It starts this. You recognize the sin, and I recognize the sin in my life. So, so what I want us to do today is not forget. I, I said something last week that I, I pray you don't ever forget. And I want to say it again this week, just to say it again. Like when we come to the Lord, we come to worship, we want to be encouraged, don't we? We need to be encouraged. And we want to receive encouragement from the Lord. And often I do. I did this morning in my own heart, in my own life. And God met me today and just my, without me deserving it. He just showed me a little bit of forgiveness. That was big to me. We want to receive encouragement from the Lord, but we also need to learn to receive rebuke from the Lord. Look, let's not push away rebuke. Folks, there are many times as believers, as followers of Christ, we, it's normal for us to receive a rebuke from the Lord and a push from the Lord, a challenge to the Lord to change some things. And, and right here, they recognize the sin in their lives. And, and if you want to repent, this is where it starts. The anatomy, let's break it down. Repentance is, starts when you recognize the sin in your life. Then, then you own up to your rebellion. You own up to it. I mean, when's the last time you owned up to your own rebellion? How often do we come and go, oh, man, look at that guy over there, man. He's, uh, he's not very good. And we overlook, like, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you look at the speck in your brother's eye while you, while you have a plank in your own. Man. The anatomy of repentance, you own up to your own rebellion. You, then you agree with God when error is exposed. When, when, when you see an error in your life, you go, God, I agree with you. I'm going to agree with you. God, I am wrong here. And I'm going to agree that you are right. And most of our struggles in life come when we choose to agree with ourselves rather than agree with God. And one of the things I pray that in everything we do, we say, God, we will agree with you. And I won't trust my own feelings I mean, you know that, right? You've learned not to trust your feelings, right? I mean, I mean, there are times I feel a certain way, but, but come on. We, we have grown up to the point where we don't just trust our feelings. I mean, when I was little, I thought there was a monster under my bed. And I got older, and I was like, that's a suitcase. It's not a monster. It's a suitcase that we stored under the bed because we need a room. Oh, okay, I'm not afraid of the suitcase anymore. We agree with God. God, I'm going to think like you think. I'm going to agree with you. I want to hear that. Then we, what does that look like next? You, you, it moves you to confess that sin to God. God, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it to you. And that's the beauty of the Lord, that, that, that we can bring our, our junk. It's like going to the doctor. And, and if you're sick and you go to the doctor and you're like, well, I don't want to tell you what's wrong that's dumb you're at the doctor tell him you're sick he's a doctor we come to the Lord God here's I'm not going to hide from you and then and then what do you do what do you do next you set yourself up for a real change you set up for change set yourself up for change do something about it like make sure you can change how do you do that 
Well, you turn, you, you trust the Lord. You look to him. You walk with him. Walk with the Lord. You then, God's given us this, the church. We're to know one another. We're not to be hidden from one another. We should know our junk. Guess what? Every one of us have junk in our lives. And I'm grateful to be a part. I want to be a part of a church that I can walk in, even as your pastor, and someone can look at me and go, are you okay? I don't think you're okay. That they know me so well that I can't fake it. And let me tell you something. One of the biggest problems in churches today is we fake it. And we've got to be, I long to have a church that we know one another so well that we can't fake each other out. And if I start to rebel, somebody's going to get in my way and go, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know what that's called? It's called real community. It's called discipleship. It's called relationship. This is why we, and I believe we can have a large church. And be in one another's lives. We gotta do that. That's why you gotta be involved in a group. And out of those groups, you gotta be responsible with one another and care for one another and walk with one another. We need each other. And, you know, um, I love Psalm 16, 5 and 6. A great, a great verse you gotta memorize. Oh, Lord, you have assigned my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Oh, that's a beautiful verse that God has put boundary lines in front of us that are in pleasant places. He's assigned, he's called us here together. We're not here by accident. We're not in this community by accident. And guess what? He makes our lot secure. Then you know what happens? It's interesting. They, they walked with the Lord for 20 years. 20 years of repentance. What, what would it look like if you and I for the next 20 years said we're going to live in, in repentance and in community, and in life together, and walking with the Lord, and pushing one another to walk with the Lord, think about what would happen. 20 years from now, I'll be 68. Are you kidding me? And I know it goes fast, because I sat and watched a video on Friday night of my father-in-law. It was his birthday, and all his friends came, and all these people were in this video, and I was looking at the video that was taken when he was 40. He's 70 now. He looks good for 70. I hope I look that good when I'm 70, if I make it. But you know what? I looked at these guys, and I looked at that video. I looked at them. I thought, man, you guys look old. 20 years goes like that, doesn't it? But think of the adventure. Think of the experiences. Think of the life that would be our story in Owasso and Tulsa if we walked with God for 20 years. Oh, why don't we start today? Let's start that today. 
they, the story, and now we gotta, we got to wrap up. Point three, just for fun, so you, you don't get mad at me for leaving a blank. We should expect God to respond to repentance and faith. Hey, we should expect God to respond. He does. In this story, they're worshiping the Philistines. They're attacking them as they're worshiping. And guess what happens? There's a verse here, and you can go read it. I'm going to read it right now because it's so amazing. 1 Samuel 7, 10, as the, as the Philistines are attacking them, and, and they're more powerful as an army, and it's a difficult moment. And it says, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. You know what's interesting? Satan, anytime you're with the Lord and you, and I found this to be true, when, I, when, when my kids were born physically, it was so amazing. We wrapped them in a little cocoon. They couldn't move their arms, and we took them to the house, and we were like, oh, my goodness, and we set them in a crib, and there was pads all around it, and, and even though it was Noah's Ark, the destruction of the world, it was still kind of cute, and, um, and we, they just sat there, and we fed them, and it was like, oh, my goodness, let's not let them get hurt. That's what happens when you're born physically. What happens when you're born spiritually? You're in a battle immediately. You get fiery darts immediately. And here's God's people. They're, they're repentant and they, they worship the Lord. And guess what? They're right with the Lord and the attack came. But the Lord thundered loudly. For them. That's who we serve. How can we serve another? That's why I pray today that we walk out of this place not going through the motions, not in a state of rebellion, but saying, Lord, we will look to you. We will serve you. We will be a people that are repentant quickly. And I'll tell you what, we will watch. If we, if we do this, now remember, this is to a we. This is to God's people. That's 1 Samuel. It's written to a, a people of God. If we lived repentant for the next 20 years, just imagine what God would do. We got to start there today. We got to start there today. So that's an invitation today. That's our invitation today. Um, we're going to have various leaders down front. My wife's going to be down front if there's a lady that, and we're, every week we're going to have some ladies down front. Because maybe some of you ladies need someone to pray with. Some of our staff's going to be down front. Look, let's, let's be a people that repent. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, let me tell you something. There is no other God but him. No other God. Don't take my word for it. Just look at history and think. 
Use your rational brain and think. And you know what you'll discover? There's no one like him. None. When these people look at me and say, you're foolish for believing in God, I'm like, are you kidding me? I've used my brain and I've used logic and rationality and I see no other God but him. I've also been touched by him, been forgiven by him. Come to Jesus.